can watch while they kosher their house for Pesach and while they cook and uh, jog and do whatever they do, um, whatever y'all do out there. Um, no driving. Wonderful. No driving. <laughs> do not drive. And yeah, don't, yeah, 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 don't drive during it too, too much. Yeah, thank you. Um, so thank you uh, for joining us and we're excited to enter Pesach next week, next, uh, next Saturday night. And we have the great opportunity uh, to prepare for that in thinking about some of our timeless religious ideals, ethical ideals, and how they relate to a major contemporary and ancient problem. Um, and we're here with a master teacher, Rabbi David Almug, who lives in Yonkers with his wife, Lisa, and their two children, and teaches at the Academy for Jewish Religion a graduate of YCT Rabbinical School. He served as campus rabbi at the Columbia Barnard Hillel and is currently working on his PhD in rabbinics at JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary. I had the great privilege of being a chavruta of Rabbi Almug's studying, uh, a study partner of his studying Buddhist texts in the Hillel some 15 years ago. And... Uh, uh, 15 years ago. And then we've continued that study partnership on and off throughout the last two decades. And, uh, and it's great to be able to, to share a friend and a teacher with folks here. He has slides he's going to show. And also he's going to post one more time in case you join this late. Um, the, um, some slides where you can uh, tap into that uh, if you want to save those or look at those in a different way. So, hi, Rabbi Gerson, thanks for joining. We thank you all for joining us, and I'm going to pass over the floor to Rabbi Elmer. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Shmuley. Thank you. I, the Chavruta has been amazing for me and just a, a real touchstone in my life. Um, and I, I want to thank the organizations involved in this also, and both, uh, both for giving me this opportunity, but also for being a good segue, um, because pluralism and social justice are both, um, I think, really characteristic of who we are and where we are as a community, at least within much of America. And I, I'm going to get to that. So I want to start first by putting my intentions on the table. My program today grew out of a desire to find a religious application for the ideas that were discussed in many of our Jewish institutions last summer. After the killing of George Floyd, many of our communities began discussing racial justice with renewed vigor. And I wanna explore what that means Jewishly. One of the main concepts that we discussed is that we are often blind to challenges other people face precisely because we do not face them ourselves. In other words, privileged blindness. Now, I personally most strongly connect to Torah and Judaism through study and teaching of texts. Um, so that's where I'm going to take my exploration. But I recognize that this is a crowd with diverse connections to Judaism. And some you know, also have different understandings of the concept of privilege blindness. So your approach may be different. And you know, I'll say this a couple of times, take what, from it what you can. Um, I also have to confess that my motivation is a bit reactive. Um, I don't wanna go into detail here. But I felt that too many of the responses from the rabbis within the broader American Jewish community were disappointing. I was surprised particularly by the resistance to the idea that a vulnerable minority would fear and distrust the authorities or question the sincerity of well-meaning outsiders. 
it was at odds with many of our own historical experiences, including many Jews living in the world today. Um, that pushed me towards a different question. So was there a relationship between privilege blindness in America and how we approach our own historical memory as Jews? Does it affect how we view our sacred traditions? Which as we know, testified to quite a bit of trauma. Was I missing something in my own Torah study? So just one more apology, one more caveat. A, a lot of what I share today comes out of broad readings of many texts and ideas influenced by too many of my teachers to name. Similarly, I'll use broad brushstrokes to depict aspects of our history and our communities, which all deserve more subtlety and refinement than I can give them. So again, please take what works for you. And also I'd love your feedback. This is a work in progress. Um, and finally, I, I have a lot of material to cover, but I promise you there will be time for discussion and questions at the end. And if it seems I'm getting too close, just shut me up and let's just have conversations. Okay, so I wanna first tell, be very simplistic about this, where we are. Um, for many Jews living in Europe and America, an enticing possibility opened up in the modern period. And that was fundamentally reconciliation, right? Reconciliation with our non-Jewish neighbors. By that, I mean something particular. I mean the integration into society while living fully as Jews, but also as equal citizens. And I know that's not gonna be equal everywhere, of course. But what I mean is that the society doesn't maintain any obstacles significant obstacles to participating and benefiting from its institutions by just by virtue of the fact that we're Jewish. To me, that's, that's how I'm fundamentally de defining it. And I'm sure we can all nitpick on different points, but I think you get the idea. Um, you know, the Torah teaches that we should have the same law for the Ezrach and the Ger, for the resident and the stranger. And what I think was being offered to us in the modern period was for us to no longer be strangers, but to actually have some of the rights of gay and, and I recognize that to our sorrow, we discovered that not everybody was as sincere in their offer of reconciliation. I, I recognize that. Um, but for many of us, we live in places where we do know that there was some sincere form of reconciliation. So I, I, I first wanna just talk about three different communities, one of which is ours. Um, the, fir the first two communities is, I'm gonna say represented broadly by what we call ultra-Orthodoxy, although not limited to them and not complete, and certainly not uh, descriptive of everyone who's ultra-Orthodox, and also of Zionism, and again, you know, these are thoughts, these are ways of thinking that I think appear in these communities strongly that believe reconciliation was either impossible or undesirable. Um, but in America, I think most of us have embraced some measure of reconciliation, you know, and that will manifest very differently in our movements, in our communities, in our families, you know, ask your local rabbi, you know, type of thing. Uh, but most, mostly we are comfortable and we feel a certain sense of comfort. We're cautious. You know, we have the Shoah. We learned we have to remain vigilant. We know Pittsburgh's happen in our day. I'm sure a lot of you here have personal stories of anti-Semitic incidents. I know I do. 
I know to succeed in America, we had to advocate for ourselves in multiple ways. But we know we have partners of good faith on the other side. And when I say other side, I also want to recognize that that includes for many of us in our own families. That's the community that we're in. And that's true even in, in, in uh, the Orthodox world, although perhaps not as broadly accepted. Um, we've been able to forge alliances, educate non-Jews about anti-Semitism. Leading Christian institutions have taken active measures to address anti-Jewish imagery in Christian religion. Um, we haven't avoided community leadership. We haven't avoided uh, political leadership. We really see ourselves as Ezrachim, as citizens and not Gabriel. And one of the things that has come out of that is that we feel responsible for our fellow citizens. We're no longer as parochial or insular, right? If we look even just internally religiously, and this is an example that, you know, this is just one example. After 9-11, how many of our synagogues started not only saying a prayer for the US government, which many did, many synagogues started introducing prayers that were less internally focused prayers for the U.S. government to be a good government for its own people and not just to be good to the Jews. And we saw proliferation in, in communities that were more insular of prayers for uh, U.S. armed forces and things like that. On the flip side, we have organizations like Ori Litzedek who see social justice as a religious you know, as a religious commandment and something uh, and a responsibility as a resident. So I guess with all of that, what I'm basically saying to sum up is that we are reconciled to some degree. I'm not making any broad theological claims about the future. I'm not saying the Messiah is coming or not. Those are for the movements to decide. And I'm glad we're in a pluralistic environment so we can, uh, you know, we can accept that about each other. But we basically were reconciled. Of course, there were costs to this process. And one of the well-known costs is tied closely to the history of the movement. Um, because so many of our traditions and our texts reflect this experience of galut, of being second-class citizens, of having to be in places where the non-Jewish society at large was not interested in reconciling with us, that creates a sense of dissonance. Many of those texts simply don't speak to us because they don't reflect our current reality. I also want to recognize there are many other reasons apart from reconciliation why people um, feel alienated from our texts and traditions. Um, but reconciliation is, is surely one of them. Of course, there is another cost, which is that the society we reconciled ourselves to is far from perfect. Um, and in truth, that has a lot to do with the history of movements as well, at least in some ways. So for example, in the United States, we're, we can be blind to the effects of institutional racism. Um, and let's think about, just for a moment, our denominations were often defined by suburban communities that developed in a time of housing severe housing discrimination and redlining. Um, I also, just, this, just two weeks ago, I learned, I didn't know about this. I didn't know that um, the over 1 million Black World War II veterans um, were largely denied GI Bill benefits. There were about half a million Jewish World War II veterans. And of the ones of those who were not also black, 
is that's also another part of our community that we don't speak about enough. But um, I have to wonder how many of them face that same discrimination and how that might have helped us in our building our own communities, what that benefit, what that difference might have made. So to sum up, many of us, myself included, embrace our citizenship in this largely non-Jewish country as a positive part of who we are, despite the constant and tragic reminders that we are still vulnerable, but we know we have caring allies and support from American institutions. We also know that there are costs, both to alienation from within our own traditions and also um, reconciling with a, a society that has many of its own sins that we need to collectively address. So first of all, I, I know it was a mouthful. Any questions on that point, clarifying questions? Uh, yes, Rabbi, I do have sure. a question. Um, my name is Ari Anderson. I work for uh, Arizona Judicial Justice with Rabbi Shmuley. So I just have a quick question about what you were mentioning about um, prayers for the U.S. government uh, in synagogue, which I've always found really problematic because mm -hmm. I think that inch is really close to nationalism, right. um, which is, you know, we as a people have suffered at the hands of nationalists for eons. Um, so it doesn't make much sense to me when I see people doing it themselves. Like, I don't really like that we have flags in synagogues. Sure. So we're, you know, where, where do we go from that? And how, so how do we, that's a, you know, that's continue a, that's to a, be in support? That's a, real, that's a good question. Well, I will say at least within, I wasn't making so much of a prescriptive claim. I wasn't saying whether or not this is what we should or should not do. And I, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I think that's a larger conversation. Um, what I was describing though, was the very fact that we are doing that shows that we think of ourselves as something more mm -hmm. than uh, 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 strangers. Mm -hmm. at, that we see ourselves as responsible, even if the particular way in which we man it manifests is not how our different groups or our different synagogues or different families might approach it. Um, it's a good question, I think, for another time. All right, mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm going to uh, start with um, with the slides. Thank you, Ari. Um, let me. Uh, okay, I, gotta, I have to share screen, so just give me a moment. Um, or if you want to, the 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 links that I gave have, um, you know, have many of the slides there as well. Let's see. I have, I put a Google Slides link, even though I'm using, um, I'm using a PowerPoint. Okay. All right. So I want to start with what I'm doing again, just to repeat that I'm trying to find a religious approach, not just, uh, you know, something that both speaks to me Jewishly as somebody who loves studying texts and loves our traditions, but, and that directly addresses issues of privilege blindness and what that means for us today. Um, so with turning to our sources, of course, I'm starting with four questions. The, uh, the Haggadah enthusiasts here might be interested to know that I originally only had three questions, but uh, later versions of this talk, I changed it to four. Um, <laughs> So just to repeat what the four questions are, who is the one remembering? What are they remembering? Is it a personal memory? And why are they remembering it? So I'm gonna to turn to uh, first slide. Can everyone see? All right. This is from Exodus. Uh, for context, it happens right after the death of the firstborn 
and the first Passover night in Egypt with the blood on the doorpost and all of that. Of note, in the previous section, God tells Moshe and Aaron to make the Passover rituals into a zikaron, a memorial for future generations. Moshe describes it in personal, int intimate acts of storytelling between parent and child. Moreover, God talks to Moshe and Aaron again and tells them to have one law for the local and one for the stranger. But Moshe here in this chapter in Yudbet in 12 and Yudgimel, he never mentions that. He never brings up the idea of, well, you were a stranger, so you should treat strangers well. That he doesn't bring up here. So give me one second. So if you just take a look, I'm gonna also just cut to the next slide so you can have a look at that. Just take a moment. Okay. So I wanna start first with verse two. Verse 51 is just for context, but verse two, this is the only thing God says to Moshe um, at this moment, at this moment, all he says is, consecrate to me every firstborn, man and beast. The first issue of every womb among the Israelites is mine. Um, and if you jump to verse three, you're kind of expecting Moshe to just say the same thing. But Moshe ends up couching it. He gives this big description. Um, so I want to talk about that just for a bit. Um, Moshe gets that God is saying that B'nai Israel are now free from Egypt, but bound to God. That's generally the explanation of how most, most of these rituals work. We're bound to God, right? He understands God performed a miracle culminating in the plague of the firstborn. God's first decree after freeing them is to claim a right to their firstborn, which sends multiple messages. And, you know, one of them, you're bound to me. But it isn't just a mercenary claim. Um, and for the human child, it's just symbolic. Um, anyway, so I just want to get that out there. Um, <laughs> The point is that we are all equally bound to God. None of our families, none of your families has more of a claim on a relationship to God than anyone else's. We're all equally bound by the legacy of the 10th plague. So Moshe's response, which begins in verse three, is him realizing that God is essentially creating a ritual of memory. And he has to explain that to them. So it's the first thing he says, you know, remember, Zachor. So I'm going to ask my questions now. So who is remembering? We see two groups. The first group that's remembering is the, Jew, is, you know, the Israelites living in this time. They were the ones who were enslaved, who are just being liberated today. The other group remembering are their future generations. And so for one group, it's a personal memory. For the other group, it isn't. And what they're remembering is the day they went free, but also that God took them out with divine might. Right? And I would say what they're remembering is also to memorial, they're being told to memorialize it. Uh, one of the things I think is very important is that the word zahor is used here. You know, the root often is, used, is also to mention uh, memory is not simply a private personal act. It's also a public act. It's an interactive act. And that's true for all of us. Um, at least according to most studies I've seen. Um, so in this case, the generation of the Exodus is memorializing Passover, creating events for later generations to recall. And why? 
Well, one, to know that God is powerful and God used that power to save them so that they're bound to him. But perhaps also that God is powerful enough, and I think uh, to look at that God is powerful enough to actually fulfill the promises, bring them to the promised land. Um, and that this is, they have to pass it on to future generations. And as I said before, though, Moshe here does not mention anything about being a stranger, even though God explicitly says it in the previous chapter. So let's turn now to a bit later in the book of Exodus. Um, this is in Parshat Mishpatim. Just to give you the chronology, it is presented right after the giving of the Torah. So I'm just going to read these. You shall not wrong the stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan. If you do mistreat them, I will heed their outcry as soon as they cry out to me, and my anger shall blaze forth, and I will put you to the sword, and your own wives shall become widows and your children orphans. And then the next chapter we read, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. So here we have the same former slaves being reminded of their personal experiences of slavery, not memorializing the day of liberation. Neither of these texts notably use the term Zachor. And in fact, later when it mentions Chagamatzot, the idea of creating a memorial isn't mentioned there either. And the future generations is, is, isn't really mentioned at all there. Um, in Exodus 22, they're simply reminded they were strangers. But I think the psukim that follow suggests that they're being reminded of the event of the Exodus itself, that God is powerful, and that God listens to the cries of the oppressed and fights for them. You are strangers, you were vulnerable, and look what happens to your oppressors. Don't make me save them from you. In Exodus 23, however, it's somewhat different. They're being reminded of their experiences. This isn't God flexing the divine muscle. This is God asking for empathy. It's so it's a different argument, but both of them together are using the, ex their, the experiences, the personal experiences that they had in order to treat those who are, are strangers who are more vulnerable well. It's just giving two different reasons, you know, sort of an inherent reason and a, an external threat. Give me one second. Okay. So I'm going to leave the book of Exodus and jump to Leviticus. Um, you know, I know I'm skipping a lot. I'm skipping the explicit commandment to love the stranger in, in Vaikra. So I, I, you have to bear with me. It's a lot of material. Um, additionally, Sefer Dvarim, where I'm skipping to, has it repeats the memory of Egypt all over the place. And there's a lot of places that I would love to look at, but we can't. But just for a little bit of context, Dvarim, Deuteronomy, is essentially Moshe's last will and testament. Right? The children of Israel had been in the Midbar, in the desert for 40 years. The generation of the enslaved has completely, you know, has died out, except for two people, really, and Moshe. So they're about to go into a land. And I want to say, the important thing, in, in, according to me, is they're about to go into the land free and with a, a certain amount of power, which means they also have the ability to abuse that power. So if you look, I'm 
I put at the bottom of this page, um, these two, two verses that basically say the same thing. And it's actually repeated in several places in, in Dvarim. This verse was, right? Remember you were slaves in the land of Egypt. And it is always given in the context of laws that either um, address the creation of social safety networks or the inclusion of more vulnerable or uh, you know, less, uh, people with less access, including them in things like celebrations. Um, I wanna be clear, I am not saying that these are ideal societies, um, but what I am saying is that Moshe is constantly reminding them, remember your ancestors were slaves in Egypt, therefore make sure that you are taking care of and addressing the needs of those who are vulnerable, just like you were. Um, the main text, which I'll just read quickly from uh, Deuteronomy 16.3, is one you should recognize from the Haggadah. You shall not eat, eat anything leavened with it for seven days thereafter. You shall eat unleavened bread, the bread of distress, the lechem oni. For you departed from the land of Egypt hurriedly, the chipazon, so that you remember the day of your departure from the land of Israel, all from the land of Egypt, wow, from the land of Egypt, all of the days of your life. Uh, First, let's figure out who's remembering. So as I said, it's the Israelites who did not experience slavery themselves. And they're remembering the day God took their ancestors from Egypt, but also from context. And you could see this verse, one verse comes in the section, in the uh, parak immediately beforehand. And the other verse is really the end of this section um, about the holidays. And you see, it's also not just about the day, but about the bitterness, the, the memory of the experience. Note again, that here, Zacharta is used, whereas in Exodus, it was not. But also note that the same rituals of remembrance are used. In fact, the psukim that just precede this one are about offering of the firstborn, which as I said, is one other reminder. So. I could end here, by the way. I could say, why remember? I, I, I think I can neatly explain it, right? Their lack of personal experience is the very reason for remembering Egypt. The Torah understands privilege blindness, and it creates opportunities for us to remember historical oppression, precisely because it knows we're at risk of forgetting. So it reminds people of God's might, of course, but that just reinforces the point. And there are other things it does. It undermines aristocratic notions of class. You are descended from slaves too, just like we, we saw with the, uh, with the firstborn. Uh, you are descended from slaves too, so you're no better than those who are struggling in your society. You don't have any birthright to it. I would also add that in the context of Devarim, we have the concept of bidrachav, of walking in God's ways. So God frees the oppressed, so should we. There are many more verses in Torah that I could give to spell out this notion. But just because we can talk about identifying that distance between the generation entering into the land of Egypt, uh, into the land of Israel, and the generation that left Egypt, doesn't mean we, that that will actually help us overcome privilege blindness. It just gives us a reminder to do it. But additionally, it's also not the end of our history. There's so much more 
that happens, and especially within biblical history. So with that, I want to turn to two texts from the prophets. And again, I know I'm skipping a lot. Um, all right. So one text is from Isaiah. I want to be clear. The texts I'm taking are from Isaiah, Yeshayahu, and Yirmiyahu. And they are both big fans of helping and supporting people who are facing persecution or they're big fans of it. But what we see is they unlink the memory of Egypt from that. They don't really mention the two together. Um, so let me first read Isaiah. Thus said the Lord, who made a road through the sea and a path through mighty waters, clearly referring to the Exodus, although perhaps some other stories, who destroyed chariots and horses and all the mighty host. They lay down to rise no more. They were extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not recall what happened of old or ponder what happened of yore. I'm about to do something new. Even now it shall come to pass. Suddenly you shall perceive it. I will make a road through the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And then in Jeremiah, we see a sort of similar thing. See a time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a true branch of David's line. He shall reign as king and shall prosper and he shall do what is just and right in the land. In his day, Judah shall be delivered and Israel shall dwell secure. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our vindicator. Assuredly, a time is coming, declared the Lord, when it shall no more be said as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, but rather as the Lord lives who brought out and led the offspring of the house of Israel from the Northland and from all the lands to which I have banished them, and they shall dwell upon their own soil. So both of these are examples of nechama, of consolation, the promise that once again, God will save us. The concern here, however, is that the Jews are currently facing conquest and exile. So quickly, what is being remembered? Well, there are two types of events, old events and new events, neither of which have been experienced by the, by the people involved. Um, the old events are simultaneously being remembered, but there's also, they're also being forgotten. I mean, Isaiah is both intentionally vague and both Isaiah and Yermiyahu, they both imagine a time when the future miracles will make us forget. Wow, you know, you thought Egypt was good. You know, when the Mashiach comes, forget it. You won't even remember it. Uh, so I want to add just one thing. I think that both of these texts, both of the prophets, the Arnivi'im, are very sensitive to a question that was likely being asked during the exile of their days. Um, in particular, it's explicitly stated at the beginning of Yermiyahu, where is God? Right? So, in fact, the memory of Egypt is not as strong now. They have to wonder, where is God? Yermiyahu's asking it. And I think that that's kind of hidden. That's kind of, uh, um, that's implied by these sources. You know, the story of the Exodus must have sounded hollow to them. And I think the Nevi'im understood this. Of course, as I said, neither of these sources makes a uh, a connection between mem the memory of Egypt specifically and therefore you were, you were strangers, you know, you should treat strangers well, you were slaves, you should treat, you know, those who are serving you well, which seems to be, you know, which is a very common idea in the prophets, the idea of taking care of, you know, those in need, but it's not mentioned here. 
I think what we are seeing from these texts is that the effectiveness of everything done Lamanti's core in order to remember Egypt, both for its miracles and for its bitterness is contingent. It changes based on historical context of freedom and persecution. And we can really trace that out if you wanted to. And perhaps I could end here as well, right? If it's contingent, then we'll look at our situation. We have this cautious reconciliation where we are not Gerim, but Ezrahim, even if vulnerable. So, you know, however you slice it, we have enough confidence, enough privilege in America to bring back this Torah model of remembering you were strangers and slaves. To me, though, that isn't yet the religious response to privilege blindness that I want, although it's a very good justification and it gets a lot of a, a lot of good social justice work done and there's some lovely themed Haggadot that you know go along that topic. None of what I'm saying so far is particularly new either. I want to say that I'm just trying to describe what it is as I see it. When we get to the rabbinic period, and here I'm going to stop the screen share for just a second. When we get to the rabbinic period, the context changes again. We'd lost the temple again. Jews have been crushed in military rebellions multiple times, experienced horrific persecutions under the Romans. And the rabbis, as scholars demonstrate, showed a very pragmatic but defiant pacifism. And, it was, and it's mirrored in many of the Jewish communities today. So I would love to go through the entire Haggadah and show you how that is. Um, if uh, you give me one moment though, I'm going to just pull up one text that I think is truly our, um, it's truly an American tradition. You'll tell me if you recognize it. Uh, give me just one more second. So, This is truly an American tradition, the Maxwell House Haggadah. I don't know, maybe I'm dating myself, but for, for certain generations, you know, everyone had the Maxwell House Haggadah. So I'm going to quickly get, I'm going to give the Haggadah on one foot because you know, I wish we had more time, but uh, to summarize, the Haggadah is, says, please come and sit down my children. We say, what? Why? I ah, can't get it to change the page. All right, maybe I won't do this. I'm just going to read, uh, read what I have to write. We'll have to imagine the Haggadah. Um, well, it's really important that we talk about the Exodus because we were slaves and God took us out of Egypt. And we should tell the story. And we should tell it a lot. And it doesn't matter how much we think we know about it. We must tell it. There were these great rabbis. They talked about it so much. They stayed up all night. People used to argue, do we have to talk about it once a day or even twice a day? Are we going to talk about it even once we get out of this stinking exile? And when we say everyone should talk about it, we mean everyone, no matter how good or bad your aptitude or intentions are, right? And we especially do it on Seder night. 
But why? What are we remembering? Well, we're remembering that God said we would be slaves and come to our rescue, and that's exactly what happens. And in fact, that's you know, one of the central points of the Haggadah. We raise our glasses and we say, in every generation, someone tries to kill us. God saves us. Let's eat, right? And that's essentially the Haggadah. Now, more happens, of course. Right? We say, not only is it essential to our history, in fact, if we go back to the beginning, Lavan tried to destroy us, and that was even worse than the Exodus, which, by the way, we haven't even started talking about yet, even though that's the holiday that we're supposed to be talking about. We know fundamentally God was there for us and has saved us repeatedly. And as many steps as we give to this is what our suffering in Egypt was like, that's how many steps of miraculous um, amazement we were given. That's how much we moved. God was there for us. So fundamentally, we are free, and we have to see that in every generation and keep the hope alive that one day God will free us from this, this exile. Now, one thing about it, though, that you have to be crystal clear is the Haggadah goes out of its way to say it was God. It wasn't, and many scholars will talk about Christian polemics, it wasn't somebody else doing it. It, was, it wasn't uh, through a medium. But what I think one thing that's important about it also is you also have to imagine that the Jews living in, under Roman occupation when these texts were first being put together also want to make it very clear that they're not interested in being revolutionary. It is God who will save us. It is not, any, it is not our own hand. Now, with one arguable exception, which is actually on the page I'm sharing now, which is Halach Ma'anya, the Haggadah doesn't link the memory of Egypt to social justice. You say Halach Ma'anya seems to be the exception. But even then, that line, you could argue. It does say it. I'm not trying to, and I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't connect, you know, social justice to the Exodus. But the Exodus, the, the Haggadah and the rabbis, I think, are quite aware of the fact that the memory of Pesach is just not as strong a link in order to bring us to loving the Gare. It has a different purpose. It has a purpose of giving us hope. And in fact, what I want to add is I think it, it has a purpose that is the inverse of privilege blindness. If there is a blindness that privilege causes is we're not experiencing it. On the, other, on the other side, there is the lack of hope. There is the lack of opportunities and options, the inability to see a way out of your persecution. That is a different kind of blindness. And that in a certain degree, I, I think we can say that the, memory, that the memory of Pesach as it's being used for those Jews facing persecution who have to look inward, it is precedent for our liberation. It has happened in the past, God has saved us. For those of us living in times where we feel like we can be Ezrachim, where we have, whether it's free in our own land as described in the Bible, whether it is in the land of Israel today, however it is understood, if we feel that we are Ezrachim and has a responsibility, then the memory of Egypt is there to help us overcome that blindness. But as I said, the sages are quite aware of the fact that 
the memory of Egypt doesn't seem to work as well as it once did. So I'm going to go back to my sources. So I'll screen share again. I have to go. Here we go. So I'm going to read through this quickly. Um, One should recall the exodus of Egypt at nighttime. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah said, behold, I'm around 70 years old, and I did not merit the explanation that the exodus of Egypt be said at nighttime until Ben Zoma explained it and said, in order that you remember the day you left the land of Egypt, all the days of your life, the days of your life teaches the daytime, all the days of your life teaches the nighttime. The sages say, the days of your life teaches in this world, all brings it to the days of the Messiah. Just so you know, the story continues. doesn't end there, just like, like what we read in the Haggadah. The conversation actually continues. It was taught in a Abrita. Benzoma said to the sages, but will the exodus from Egypt be mentioned in the days of the Messiah? Was it not already said, and this is our Yirmiyahu quote, assuredly a time is coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no more be said, as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, but rather as the Lord lives who brought them and led the offspring of the house of Israel from the Northland and from all the lands to which I have banished them. They said to him, it is not that the exodus from Egypt will be uprooted from its place, but that subservience to the kingdoms will be, meaning the exile, will be primary and the exodus from Egypt will be secondary to it. Similarly, you say, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but instead Israel shall be your name. It is not that Jacob will be uprooted from its place and indeed the Torah still calls him Jacob, but that Israel is primary and Jacob secondary to it. So too, do not recall what happened of old or ponder what happened of yore. Do not recall what happened of old. This is the exile, the galut, the subservience to kingdoms or ponder what happened of yore. This refers to the exodus of Egypt. I'm about to do something new. Even now it shall come to pass. Rav Yosef taught, this refers to the wars of Gog and Magog, which actually are both travails, but also end the uh, subjugation of the kingdom in, in rabbinic thought. Now it's a long source, but I think it's important to read this part. A parable, to what does this compare? To a man who was traveling on the road and a wolf attacked him and he was saved from it. And he would keep telling the story of the wolf. A lion attacked him and he was saved from it. And he would keep telling the story of the lion. A snake attacked him and he was saved from it. He forgot the story of the other two and keep telling the story of the snake. In a similar manner for Israel, the recent woes caused the earlier ones to be forgotten. So I wanna point out just two things about this text. In the debate between the sages and Ben Zoma, neither side believes the exodus of Egypt will remain as the core memory of the Jewish people. The sages believe it will become secondary, while Ben Zoma believes it will be fully forgotten. The next thing I want to point out, though, is that the sages also put a spin on Isaiah. It isn't the new miracles that were so amazing that made us forget the old ones, right? It's the suffering that made us forget the early sufferings. You know, the Midrash, I think, here catches that the real forgetfulness was the result of the persecution, that they, were, they couldn't remember Egypt and hold on to that faith because where was God now? And it also, I think, suggests that the level of the miraculous is determined by the persecution and the level of the persecution. So in our law, and I'm going to wrap up here and, and give an option for how to go from here. So 
almost, I'm almost done with the main part. In our larger discussion, it deeply reflects the way oppression influences hope and the understanding of what is possible, as I said. But we are dealing with the same distance, only from the inverse direction. Today, we're dealing with the distance from the point of view of reconciliation and freedom, the concerns of privilege blindness. But we have thousands of years of woe that have made us forget the exile. So which raises the audacious question, and it's not what I'm actually suggesting, don't worry. <laughs> um, but if there is a serious goal of overcoming privilege blindness, then is Egypt the memory we need to be using? Especially since in our day, we feel more distanced from both the miracles. You know, we don't see the active hand of God, How, whatever you believe about the active hand of God, we don't see split, you know, the splitting of seas today. And we're also very distant from the enslavement, from the slavery. So I'm not telling you to throw away your Haggadot, it's clear. Um, and I'm not suggesting we stop talking about the Exodus in our daily prayers, nor am I suggesting we stop connecting the Exodus to social justice either. I think it's still a, a totally valuable um, memory to use. But what I am suggesting is that something I think a lot of our communities already do. The Shoah, for example, that has taken center stage for us in our understanding of Jewish persecution. And we've already created rituals around it in many of our communities. And it's certainly galvanized many people to take action to, on behalf of those who are facing genocide and other types of persecution. Haggadah itself places exile and, and you know, genocide at the center of its discussion, making the exodus secondary. And many of these thousands of themed Haggadot push both aside. So, but then you might ask me, right? Wasn't this the problem I started with? Alienation, isn't that it? Aren't we getting alienated from these texts, pushing them aside? I think the answer is, A, I'm not saying push it aside, but I also think it isn't the same thing. Those texts that are jarring to our sense of reconciliation, and they're real proud, some of them are ones that we dedicate whole classes to, right? Troubling texts and things of that kind. Um, they're often our best testimony for our own experience of trauma, and it has been memorialized, just not necessarily in the places that we have traditionally memorialized suffering in order to invoke action and social activism. Right? If we think of Egypt as the, as, the, as the focus, we don't necessarily look at a text of the Mishnah that's talking about something totally different, but which contains very serious reflections of a community under trauma, under oppression. We, don't, we, we tend to just confront those texts. Um, so I, I, one thing to say that there are texts, I'm, I, you know, and if we have time, I, we have 10 minutes. And, and so what I really want to, I'm going to end here, just want to say just what, what the approach that I'm suggesting is, is that we can remind ourselves of, we have constant reminders of our experiences throughout our textual tradition that are a rich resource for us to use. And I actually think that we need to actively approach those texts with an oppression lens. I know a lot of 
a lot of people will say that's too much or they, they don't want to go there. There are many other reasons. There are many other reasons to study Torah. This shouldn't be the only one. But I think that it would be a waste for us to look at these texts as if we were coming at it from purely a question of reconciliation. This text says something offensive about our neighbors. Yes, we need to recognize that. But there was a reason the rabbis in the time wrote it, what trauma they were under, and it should not keep us from encountering it and engaging with it, and not just simply for therapy, even though that's good too, but to look and say, this is our memory. We have to remember that we went through this and therefore to help us recognize it in others. Now, there's the one last point is that doesn't necessarily get us out of the problem. Because as much as it means we need to be listening to it, we, are, we still suffer from the privilege blindness. What if we don't see it? And clearly God who sees and hears our suffering, I actually think that that's what the, the main, uh, that's the explanation of God's response. Uh, if you think of the ancient world, when the God, uh, in Gilgamesh, the gods destroy humanity because they're too noisy. God gets upset at noisy people too, but in a different way. God hears the noise of the oppressed, the cries of the oppressed. And if it gets so loud that God can hear it, then God's, God's going to come down and make sure that it's quieted um, by helping out the oppressed. So really the mitzvah that I'm pointing at is we have to hear the oppressed before God does. But how do we do that? And that I have to just share from personal experience. I won't go, go into all of them, but just as I begin to listen more closely to the descriptions of black people in America, of their experiences, something changed for me religiously. And I began to recognize the similarities of their descriptions, not to just our general historical like knowledge of, of Jewish, of, of persecution of Jews, but specifically to what Chazal, to what our rabbis were talking about the issues that they had. Now, I'm not saying that the texts are the same or that the intentions are the same or that they're the same genre, but I don't think I need to say that. I think we can have one, we can find a blog post or an article or anything and still put it in conversation with our textual tradition and still get a lot out of it. Um, I think that instead of doing the kind of textual archeology span that we often do, where we find the three words, we have a Hasidic text written by somebody who really was afraid of Gentiles and hated them, who talks about it in his texts, but who also has amazingly brilliant ideas of compassion and things that we can draw from. Instead of just doing the archeology span and the surgical removal of the trauma involved to encounter it and see, well, how does that affect the way in which this text talks about persecution? How does that, affect the way in which they talk about oppression. And when we see the voices and hear the voices of those who are dealing with perhaps different kinds of oppression, but ones that are similar enough that we can put them in dialogue, I've only found that it helps. So that's my, that took longer than the 30 minutes I'd given myself. Um, I have an example of it that I can share, or we can ask questions on this, but we only have 10 minutes. So I, I don't know if we can do both. So Why what don't do we you open guys up say? The floor. Yeah, maybe good to open up the floor now and you can conclude with that if that works for you. Sure. Okay. 
Who wants to jump in here? Questions or comments? Uh, Rabbi David, this, that was that was so good. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think that's something that we we have seen is that trauma can trickle down and be passed on through generations and generations. And for a lot of us uh, looking at Pesach, uh, we we go back into that trauma, right? But do you believe that um, compassion can also be passed on through generations and generations? Uh, therefore, how do we ignite that uh, compassion aspect of of our thought and our belief and transform that into empathy? So I, it's a great question. And I, I, I think that's, that is one of the ways in which I'm describing. Um, I think that, first of all, what gets passed down as the Torah is describing it is on the one is the methods in which like we are celebrating our freedom. That's one of the things. It's not just, we don't just use Pesach to remember that we were oppressed. We also use Pesach to remember the ways in which we went free. And while in our tradition, which is based off of this time where reconciliation was not an option, they're not, they're thinking of the um, defiant ways. God's gonna take out our enemies. And just, I'll give any, like we say, uh, many people say, uh, like, you know, pour out your wrath. A lot of people don't say it because it's not, it doesn't fit within, within our worldview, but you know, the opening the door for Eliyahu, I think the most likely historical explanation is that they were checking to make sure anybody was there <laughs> listening before they said all of these psukim that basically show that God's going to take out, you know, our vengeance upon those who oppress us. So in, in that mode, we're only looking at the insularity, but I kind of imagine what was the Haggadah, what would the Haggadah have been like for that generation about to go into the land of Israel? What would the Oriel Tzedek of that, you know, who was, you know, Shmuley Yanklowitz of the desert, you know, if he were to write the Haggadah, you know, uh, um, of the Midbar, what, le what steps would he use? And perhaps if going into the land of Israel had worked out the way it was supposed to in the, in the biblical text, again, I recognize not everyone takes these stories literally, but if it had worked out, what would it have looked at like? And I think that the way in which our experiences um, get passed down, have to take that into account. I don't know if that fully answers your question. I think that answers the part to say that the empathy still gets passed down. The methods still get, can still get passed down. But the flip side is even within communities that, are, that don't experience reconciliation, it still gets passed down. It just might not get passed down in our texts in the same way. These are texts written by leadership right? This is text written by the people who have to stand. So they aren't necessarily, they're thinking about what are my community needs. And I just sat there um, last night with uh, uh, um, Reverend Dr. Evelina Huggins, who's a, 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 you know, a Zionite um, minister, me, and her community is not, in, in, not big into interfaith work. Um, but she was telling the stories of well, some people in our community are like, no, we have to be in, insular. Like, we're not involved in these conversations. We have our own issues. But that doesn't mean that the people actually on the ground aren't still empathetic and still applying the compassion that they need to apply. So it's a long answer. I'll try to keep my second answer shorter. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> Who wants to jump in here?
I don't, I, I don't know if this is a question or a comment, but I think it's fascinating that we often use memory to, um, the way we talk about memory is that it can be a good thing, that it's always a good thing in Judaism, right? That it's supposed to spur us towards social action, at least in the in the reform movement that I grew up in and that I'm, you know, a rabbi in. But this idea that memory can also be a liability and that can make us too focused on our own experience and callous toward toward other experiences because we've so centered our own experiences in this hierarchy of suffering, whereas which makes it hard for us to see what's in front of us. So I just, I wanna thank you for that because it really problematizes for me the way that I've been taught um, the uses of memory in Judaism. So thank you. And I don't know if that's a question, but if you could speak more on it, that would be amazing. <laughs> I, I, it's a great, it's a great observation. Um, the, the way we use memory is so um, different depending on circumstances and the same memories can be used for totally different things. And I think here we see an example, you know, in one case it's used as a way to help us get out of our, you know, to help us work through our um, trauma. In other case, it's uh, used to um, evoke sympathy or empathy. So I think it's a great observation, but I think the point is you just have to keep, you have to keep studying it. You have to keep thinking about it and realize that the memory is doing something. The memory is there for more than one thing. Um, because if we use it to justify abuses of power, because we're living in our trauma, Right. I'm just I'm not going to I'm not going to get specific, but but I see this a lot with my congregants who are like, well, um, anyway. Yeah, but no, I, I, actually, I will get specific. Israel is justified in doing anything they want because we have this history, this Jewish history of trauma. And so we should always look out for number one where I, so I, I just think it's fascinating and it's a really important if we take this idea of memory having a claim on us seriously we have to think about it as expand as as making expanding our empathy and making our empathy even more radical and challenging us so I just thank you for that it was really really thought-provoking I think we have two more minutes Time for another question here before Eddie wraps this up. So Rabbi Alma, you had a closing thing you want to share. Do you want to do that? Um, sure. Just, uh, I, I want to, sh I, I don't know if two minutes is really enough time. I want to share actually a text that might be triggering. So maybe I shouldn't uh, with only two minutes. Um, I, I mean, I can try, but uh, you know, I'm going to go for it anyway and just, I'll trust people understand that this isn't what I believe. Um, here. Um, here we go. Okay. Waiting for it to actually show up on my... Uh, not showing up. Okay, I'm so I, I don't here. So I, I, I will share. Um, there is here, I'm going to just try sharing the sharing my screen one more time. And then if that doesn't work, then I guess I'll just say goodbye. Um, here we go. Okay. 
So this is an ancient text, the Tosefta. It's from the Tanaitic period. It's from written by Jews who were in Roman Palestine suffering under occupation, but after, you know, they're not, they're, it's after rebellions. And it's one that I think a lot of Americans here will bristle at, right? You know, one should not prepare food neither for feeding Gentiles nor for feeding dogs on Yom Tov. And we know what the signs and the history are. Now, immediately we could contextualize and say, well, this isn't a sign, this is internal speech. And this is from people who really had a lot, had reasons to mistrust their neighbors. Um, what I did though, and I don't have a lot of, I wish I could show you the whole thing. So in just the one minute that I have left, there was just a blog post from the Huffington Post that I was shown years ago called Invitations to the Cookout Have Now Been Rescinded. Now, I'm not saying it's the same text, and I don't want to diminish the author of this text or the authors of, or our, our sages by making any, uh, any unnecessary comparisons. But if you have the chance afterwards, um, read through this and take a look at what is the woman who's writing this? Who does she see, what does she see herself as? Is she a gatekeeper for this community? And in what ways? And who does she see as the gatekeepers? And what are their anxieties? And when you compare it to the text um, here, uh, here's the whole, the whole text with do not feed, you know, the, uh, the whole with the offensive rhetoric. It's about not inviting Gentiles on Yom Tov. In this case, it's about not feeding them on Yom Tov, but it's also about who it is who's acting as a gatekeeper and the need for intercession when the authorities come into play. And here, I, I'm giving it to you in one, uh, one leg. I think that this is two approaches to accommodating when there is no interest in reconciliation, right? You know, in a, in, when it isn't, what does it mean to accommodate, and in this case, the authorities, when you're actually, a, when you have to live in fear of them. And many of the similarities between, the, you'll see there are similarities between the descriptions here and also later halakhic texts and the blog post that I, that, I, that I just set out and many other conversations about what does it mean to have a Jewish only space or a black only space and who are the allies and who are the people that we invite in and why do we fear and mistrust and how much does it have to do with the authorities? Because a lot of it does. Um, so I think I gotta let you go because it is definitely past my time. Um. Yeah, thank, thank you so, so much, uh, Rabbi David Almog. Uh, it's always a pleasure to learn Torah with you. And, and just like, as we said in the beginning, uh, I mean, anytime we can link in Torah and social justice, it's just a pleasure. Uh, so I appreciate everybody who's on the call. Thank you so much for joining us. Huge shout out um, to Rabbi David for this uh, from our amazing organizations, Ariel Etzetic and Arizona Jews for Justice. We thank you so much. Everybody have an amazing day. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye.